Welcome to the 2041 Project, The Future Now, a podcast that listens for the distant drums that set the pace for our national heart. I'm Nadej Boon. The 2041 Project is a podcast of the Green New World Broadcasting Collective. In accordance with the Digital Media Authenticity Act of 2038, this podcast is being recorded on October 3rd, 2041, and the provenance token is... Within just a few years, the Wilder Student Movement has gone from fringe activity to cultural force to be reckoned with. When I was a student at SUNY Oneonta, we'd often gather at college camp for bonfires and music sessions, but few of us could seriously imagine foregoing the central heat and Wi-Fi of our dorms for full-time living in the woods. But now colleges and rural areas around the country are reporting that thousands of students are eschewing creature comforts for closeness to other creatures. America has a long tradition of people seeking communion with nature, starting with the national myth of Thoreau's sojourn at Walden Pond. And it's hard not to feel Thoreau hanging over the story, but we'll get into that later. Before I met Nick, Everything I knew about the Wilder students was secondhand information. After I inundated him with questions about what life was like as a Wilder student, he invited me to spend a weekend at their encampment to experience it for myself. I brought my recorder along so you can spend a weekend with the Wilder students too. My name is Nick and I am a Wilder student. I live here with the woods. I meet Nick at college camp in the late fall. Some leaves are down, Some are still on the trees and colorful. It's cool out, and we can see our breaths. I ask Nick to guide me on a hike around the landscape the Wilder students live in, study, and are trying to protect. We start out by an old stock pond and follow a logging road along what, a long time ago, was the Hoffman Farm. We cross the creek, and the trail winds up a slope when Nick suddenly turns off the trail and stops at a tree. This is our first stop. As far as we know, this is the last mountain maple south of the Adirondacks. I visit it every day. They used to be all over this region, but with the warming, now the range is shifting north. This tree is like an old village elder. If I could understand its language, it would tell us something about what this forest community used to be like and how it's changed, how it's changing. I sit on the stump sometimes because the view of the creek is nice. Last spring, I watched a female fisher teaching her kids how to hunt mice, and that was pretty cool. What's a fisher? It's like a weasel, a native species that was wiped out in the 1800s, but they've become more common. One of the success stories. Sometimes they're called fisher cats, but they're not cats and they don't fish. So, why did you come to the woods, Nick? I guess I came to live a more sustainable lifestyle, less consumption, less waste, more time uh, outside learning from nature. Everyone talks about a low footprint existence, but we're trying to figure out what that means in action. I mean, it's all about the way we live day to day, like how do we heat up breakfast, but it's also about realigning social, cultural, political, and economical relationships. So it's more than just an extended camping trip. Would you consider yourself a typical Wilder student? I think everyone here cares about the Earth. We were all born under a dark star. 
All of us were affected. However, some come here to build a utopia, some come here to party and go wild, some come here because their friends are here, and some come here because they like being alone or they're uncomfortable with being around others. Are there any reasons that people are involved with the Wilder students that you would consider to be the wrong reasons? I try to give everyone here the benefit of the doubt. I find it useful to assume benevolent intention. Most contribute to the cause in some productive manner, but like many college students, some students come here to drink and do psychedelic drugs. I have no personal objections to those activities, and some of those students become really serious about the Wilder student experiment. Is it possible for humans to live in nature without wrecking it? I hear the criticism all the time that it's just a big backwoods party. I think part of that might be because it's second nature to group people under one label. And of course, some of it must be defensive. You're obviously hitting some nerve. But what do you think of the name Wilder Student? What does that word mean to you? I mean, literally, it means to be a student of the wild. It's German, but no one really knows how it, the name came into use. Living out here for a lengthy period of time, you learn things that just can't be talked to in a classroom environment. But you have to consider what your definition of wild really is. Literally speaking, there's virtually no place on this planet that hasn't been touched by humans in some way. Even if a human has never stepped foot on that land, the air above it has been transformed by our industry. I also think it's important to remember that humans have always shaped the land around them. There's this whole spectrum of human interaction with land between truly untouched and paved metropolis. So how much of that spectrum does your definition of wild encompass? I've worked to broaden my definition to acknowledge that the Haudenosaunee people lived on and shaped this land well before any European settlers arrived. I do consider myself a wilder student, but I recognize and acknowledge the fact that the land I'm living on is far from some sort of mythical untouched place. follow the trail up the hill and come to a clearing planted with sapling trees, each one protected by a chicken wire enclosure. There's a reforest service sign that says study area with a barcode on it. I ask Nick what's going on here. We're working with the reforest service on a research project. We got five test plots around the college camp property. What we're doing is testing different plant communities to figure out formulas for larger reforestation efforts. In this plot, we've got some oak varieties usually found a little bit south of here, and we've got something very special. Those saplings with the red markers are daughter chestnuts, grown from the seeds of a few old trees that survived the chestnut blight 150 years ago. That's pretty amazing because before Europeans came here, these were all chestnut forests. We've cut most of them down, and the blight killed the rest. So in some ways, we're restoring something that used to be here. So you're replanting the forest? Exactly. To put it bluntly, our forests are sick. We don't think they'll survive without intervention and stewardship. We're trying to introduce a resilient and biodiverse community of plants into the forest to jumpstart the stalled succession process and reverse the loss of biodiversity that is the underlying illness. Is the loss of biodiversity because of climate change? Yes, and other things. First and maybe most basic is the lack of understory. When you walk through the woods, they look really clean. You can walk wherever you want. In a healthy forest, you should have trouble walking through it. But here, you don't see a lot of shrubs or small trees. 
That's because of the deer overpopulation. They eat all the young trees. So when the trees you see die, there won't be any to take their place. Without intervention, the whole forest is standing like that mountain maple, the last of its kind. And the forest has been literally decimated by pests in the last 20 years. You don't see ash trees and hemlock trees much anymore. The ash boros and woolly adelgids killed them all. That was 10% of our tree stock, the deci and decimate. A healthy forest should be able to recover. There should be a lot of species that can fill in, but the deer have eaten most of them and warming means that some species that used to be able to survive can't anymore. We're introducing species that might survive better, but it won't be the same forest as before, but the forest is always changing. You seem to know so much about this. I feel like as we're walking around, you see this forest really differently than I do. Like you can read the landscape and it just looks like hieroglyphics to me. There's definitely a language to it. When I first came out here, I thought tree, fern, coyote, wolf. Now I know tree species and even individuals. I can see what ferns are native and which ferns are invasive. I can tell if I'm looking at a coyote or a koi wolf. Aldo Leopold called it thinking like a mountain. I call it thinking like the forest. I remember when I learned about the fungal networks that connect trees together. It changed the way I walked around the forest. After that, I always felt like it was sensing my presence as much as I was sensing it. Oh, definitely. These trees know we are here. I think they're watching us and judging. It's really clear that you've gotten a lot from your experience as a Wilder student. I feel really lucky. I have access to open space and I'm part of a great community of people who are connected by a common value. I'm really grateful that I was lucky enough and had enough go well in my life that I could be here now and bear witness to the wilding woods. You know, I, I've heard some people describe the Wilder student movement as a kind of self-inflicted punishment. So it's interesting to hear you speak of the luxury. On the one hand, we've come a long way, but on the other, we still have a long way to go. Do you find that sense of gratitude common among Wilder students? We all come from different backgrounds. Some of us come from wealth, some come from poverty, most from somewhere in between. We know that most of the world is fighting just to get by, that they can't intentionally forego resources for the sake of the earth. We know that we are given the space on this land. Land is and always has been an increasingly desired resource. With so much more land becoming uninhabitable and underwater, we understand how special our position is. Not all Wilder students see it as a luxury though. Some students here are refugees whose families were displaced by violence, environmental destruction, or the economic collapse. Some come here because they simply can't afford to live on campus. Is there a visible disparity in the experiences of students who live with the Wilder students because of financial necessity versus those who don't? Yes, some students' treads on their boots are more worn than others. We try not to force equality on the Wilder students, but we also try to pool our resources as best as possible so that nobody goes without. That's one of my favorite aspects of being a Wilder student. It's not entirely which yours is mine and which mine is yours, but we make sure everyone who gives what they can has what they need. So you're kind of hybridizing capitalism and socialism. I guess I say more simply that we have a sharing economy. We pass through a particularly dense and dark part of the forest and cross the creek again by a waterfall. The ground is steeper and the trees are older. Probably the terrain makes this area harder to log. 
Nick seems particularly alert to the leaves and moss along the side of the trail, and at one point he crouches down and takes a wood-handled brush and hooked knife from a satchel. He brushes off some hen-of-the-wood mushrooms and gently cuts them off, leaving the base intact. They'll grow back this way, he tells me. I'm a vegan. About half the wilderness students are. One of the things I'm trying to learn is to recognize the forest products that we can sustainably harvest. These mushrooms will grow back. Most roadsides are covered with purslane in the warmer months, which means virtually limitless free salad. We pass through an old orchard. Most of the apple trees are dead, but a few aren't, and there are leaves and apples on them. I see some birds in the brush underneath a very old, twisted tree, flittering around nervously. Oh my god. Are those dark-eyed juncos? I haven't seen those since I was a kid. They're my favorites. I thought they all moved north. I'm seeing them for the first time, too. Sometimes we see signs of doom, and sometimes we see signs of hope, like this. When you're empty, that can really fill you up. We pass through another study area this one with more mature saplings, and finally to a meadow thick with dried milkweed husks. Nick tells me this is part of another project, to provide a habitat for monarch butterflies. We're almost to the Wilder Student encampment. We've gone from field to forest and back to field, and I'm stunned by the variety of landscapes. I'm also impressed by how grounded Nick is, how at home he feels in this environment. student encampment is a small collection of timber buildings next to the old college observatory. Mostly what I see looks like historic photographs of logging camps, a wood frame holding snowshoes, an outhouse. But then I notice details that are more modern. That outhouse is a composting toilet with a solar-powered fan. There's a shiny silver yurt among the cabins, and what looks like an inflatable black tent with a funnel coming off the side of it. There's a circle of stumps that's clearly used for gatherings, but there's no fire pit in the middle. Instead, there's a round, flat stone with a hole in it. And instead of flannel-clad loggers, the camp buzzes with a strikingly diverse group of young people. One student, in a well-patched jacket, empties a bowl of stems into the funnel on the black tent. Another student, in what looks like a hand-knit sweater, checks a clipboard hung on a nail on the door of the yurt. The day is mild, so we sit on the stumps while Nick tells me about how the encampment developed. When this movement first started organizing, when it went from scattered students just living in the woods to this kind of intentional life, 
everyone was still living in their own tents, cooking their own meals on their own fires, and digging a ton of cat holes. After a while, the first wilders realized how they were contradicting their own intentions in living in the woods with their inefficiency. They decided to concentrate their individual footprint as much as possible. The college actually owns much of the forested land north of the campus, and they've had a camp here for decades. So they approached the school and asked if they could build this encampment. There was some money from alumni as well, so they built a simple cabin with bunks and a kitchen, just big enough for what they needed. It worked out fine for a while, but from what I've heard, the cabin was inefficient and had no space for more students to join. Our encampment now is a lot different from that first cabin. One of my favorite things about being a Wilder student is how everyone contributes different skills to the movement. A few material science students shredded up scraps of fabric from the sustainable fashion program into a far more efficient insulation than the mud and grass the cabin was first built with. Then a few geoengineering students did an amazing job shoring up the building's foundation. The original cabin had a basic geothermal heating system, but students studying sustainable HVAC made it even more efficient. The second cabin was built before I got here, but we built that third one over there last year. I use my agricultural background to help develop our garden. I look for ways of using what the forest offers us as foragers. How do the Wilder students make decisions? Is there a, a chief, a council, or a president? We discuss things all the time in the encampment. We call quorums to make big decisions. We try our best to make sure everyone is heard from and encourage everyone to speak their mind. Of course, we do live on college land and abide by college rules, but thankfully the college gives us the autonomy to manage our own affairs. Most of us remember how bad the famine was. Some of us were displaced by climate change. Some of us experienced political violence. We all have a shared collective trauma that drives us to make this work. So we try to facilitate, rather than lead, a collective decision-making process. This process only works if we can make everyone feel as if their thoughts have value. This is a place to walk that walk of creating a better world. Okay, so that's decisions, but who does the work? How do you organize the labor to keep the encampment running? We rotate responsibilities between us to mitigate monotony and also provide a way for all of us to have a perspective on every aspect of keeping up the encampment. And we have our specialties too, so we have committees that are attached to each of those encampment systems, and so we might spend more time per week on those tasks. This rotation allows for more skilled wielders to teach the students in a field they are most proficient in. Some wielders come here not knowing how to cook or mend their clothes, take care of the tools we have, or how to do all of that with as little of a footprint as possible. The older students do train the new students, but we cultivate an environment of communication laterally so that we all learn from each other. Sometimes students who are overwhelmed at first ended up changing the way we do things entirely. I remember a hydrology major worked out the exact amount of water, down to the milliliter, needed to wash a human body effectively. We don't all follow that guideline, but that made us all look more closely at our water consumption. I get a chance to see the Wilder student labor in action later that evening. Nick has a rotation in the kitchen and invited me to join in making the daily communal meal. A Wilder is already busily chopping peppers and adding them to two huge pots on an old gas cook stove. Oh wow, I, I wasn't expecting to see a gas stove out here. Her name is Marianne. Is that from Mike Mulligan and his steam shovel? Totally. Huh. I never knew that. Really? Well, in the book, Marianne the Steam Shovel accidentally digs herself into the basement and a town grows up around her. 
Similarly, we built this kitchen around the stove. A former wielder donated it, and a few students were able to rig her up to run on biogas produced from our composting system. That's that big black tent-looking thing outside. The rest of the kitchen is simple, but tidy. A huge butcher's block, oiled and concave from use, sits in the center of the room between two long tables. Counters line the walls with stools tucked under them. Pots, pans, a few hand-crank appliances, and utensils sit on a shelf above it. I note that I don't see a single spoon. Nick gets to work chopping up the mushrooms he gathered earlier. Can I give you a hand with that? Absolutely. Grab a knife, any knife. So, what are we making? It smells so ridiculously good already. Chili. We eat a lot of chili in the fall. It's easy to make a lot of, and we never really get sick of it, because we just make it with whatever we got. And we have virtually endless supply of beans, along with corn and squash. All the local permaculture farms grow a ton of it. Are both of those pots the same thing? Mostly. The only difference is that we add these shrooms to one and venison to the other. Whenever we make something with meat in it, we always make something without it, too, for the folks who are vegan or vegetarian. Where's the venison from? There are almost always at least a few hunters in the Wilder students. The deer population isn't quite as out of control as it was a couple decades ago, but there are still too many, so we do our part to eat a lot of venison, too. I sit at one of the tables with Nick and a few other students. As I pull out my titanium spork, I notice that everyone around me is pulling out wooden spoons. Really unique wooden spoons. One student has a snake winding up the top of the handle. Another has a tiny bird carved on its end. And I'm pretty sure one is shaped like a rocket ship. Welcome to the encampment. We can always tell when someone is a visitor by their spoon. I'm Max. Max has got the snake spoon. Nice to meet you. I'm Nadesh. I was just admiring everyone's spoons. (laughs) What's the story with those? It's kind of like the initiation into the Wilder students. On their first day, everyone has to go out and find a piece of downed wood and carve their own spoon. Usually the first ones are terrible, but good enough to eat with that night. I think this is my seventh spoon? This is my first spoon, but I already had a lot of practice before coming out here. That's Scion. It's absolutely beautiful. Is your spoon a... Rocket, yeah. It's a tiny model of the Argo from the Outer Passage mission. I just interviewed Calvin Watkins. No way. That's crazy cool. What's he like? Very down to earth. (laughs) No, really though, he was so generous in every sense of the word. Are you hoping to work in aerospace? Uh, no. I'll always keep my feet on the ground. I love looking up at the stars, but there's no stargazing if we can't see past the smog, so my plan is to eventually work on installing CZ towers. I'm really hoping to work on carbon sequestration with the geoengineers for my service year. I was in the geoengineers for my service year, but I was in one spot on the EC wall the entire year. Do you think you'll have to move around a lot for CZ work? Oh, for sure. I'm ready for it, though. Everything I own fits into a backpack and a duffel bag. That makes it a lot easier to crash back on campus for a few days, but also just generally lighter. I've tried to pare down my stuff to as little as possible, but I definitely envy your agility. You know, I don't think I've asked you about that yet, Nick. What are you planning to do after you graduate? 
I want to take what we have done here and show the rest of my family what's possible. For my service year, I want to work with the new Farms Administration to bring farmers from their old ways of waste to new ways of sustainability. I'm sure I'll face reluctance, but someone has to make that happen. How about you, Max? Do you think you'll keep living in the woods after you graduate? I won't. After I graduate, I'm planning to move to Chicago to be an urban forester. I don't think we've talked about this before. Doesn't moving to a city after you graduate just make you a tourist out here? The way I see it, I want to be a part of the solution however I can. I'm out here to learn and to take advantage of the extraordinary gift we have to be able to live like this. But I want to give others the same opportunity. If we all tried to live in the woods, we'd choke out everything we're working so hard to protect. Cities are pretty damn efficient at giving people everything they need and keeping them from trampling every inch of the earth. I'm excited to help bring green into cities in a way that both people and plants can benefit from each other. Yeah, post-graduation is where the difference between the Wilder Student Movement and encampment really starts to show. People come and go from the encampments, some only staying for a few weeks, some visiting after graduation, but everyone who even has the slightest involvement with the Wilder Students is part of our story. Even now you, Nadej, are written into the story of this weird and special thing, no matter how you end up living. That was classic, Nick, by the way. We call him the peacemaker. So I've tried to shed any preconceived ideas I had about what y'all do out here, but literature is kind of the lens through which I look at the world. So I really can't help but think of what you're all doing in terms of Thoreau and Waldo's oh. Thor was a f***ing bot and Murr was a racist. F*** those dudes. It's always the person with the titanium spork who brings up Thoreau. <laughs> Whoa. Okay, so I guess you're not big fans of Thoreau around here. Yeah, how'd you guess? Now, I mean, I'm not a gatekeeper or anything. I hike back. I hike back to stay on campus a couple days a month, too, but I'm honest about that. Leopold, Carson, Abby, McKibben, Thurnberg, Two Horses, Suarez, that's where it's at. Sometimes I read a little bit of Lena Suarez's work about completely isolating themselves out in the Rockies during the war when I'm at a satellite. It's hard to describe, but there's such an amazing feeling of connection in sharing solitude. Where do you stay back on campus? The college set aside a few dorm rooms for Wilder students to decompress if life in the woods is overwhelming. I stay in the rooms occasionally, and to be honest, I enjoy it, but I also feel guilty. To go into an environment with freshly washed sheets, constant running hot water, and every resource the modern world has to offer, it really makes the waste of modern society tangible. The good thing is that these visits actually make me excited to come back out into the woods and get back to our project. It reminds me of what we're doing all this for in the first place. I guess my only touch point for that feeling would be how much more gratitude I have for convenience, even when I've only been camping for a couple of days. But of course, in your case, that's amplified so many times over. Hey, a minute ago you mentioned Lena Suarez. I don't think I've been introduced to them yet. Oh yeah, we gotta change that. You should actually check out their book of poems, Solex. I was just messing with you, by the way. Seriously, do check out Solex. I can transfer a copy to your tablet after dinner if you want. That would be fantastic. Thank you. I turned off my recorder for the rest of dinner to let the conversation flow off record. The rest of the meal reminded me of eating dinner in the comm house during my service year. I was nervous that I would feel like an outsider at the encampment, but I really quickly felt completely welcomed, not only to the physical encampment, but to the movement of the Wilder students. Thank you.
After dinner, Nick and I meet a college professor at the edge of the encampment. He arrives on a silent electric bicycle, and he's wearing a large backpack. My name is Dalton Moody, and I'm a conservation biologist in the Regenerative Forestry Program at SUNY Oneonta. Dalton studies wolves. Well, more accurately, I study coyote-wolf hybrids. We hike for 45 minutes in the dark to the satellite. I guess I should explain that. The Wilder students have a network of what they call satellite camps around the main encampment. Nick tells me they range from lean-tos to simple cabins to wild campsites with a few trees good for hanging hammocks. The Wilder students split their time between the encampment, the satellites, and the campus. Here we are. Let's get settled. In the light of our red LED headlamps... That preserves our night vision. I see a small timber frame lean-to. A hundred yards away across a meadow, I can see a low ridge punctuated by rock outcroppings and illuminated by starlight. We unroll sleeping bags and get settled for the night. Nick blows up an LED lantern that fills the lean-to with red light, and Professor Moody sets up a pair of night vision binoculars, and for a while, he and Nick discuss the pack's movements from the day before. They're looking at a tablet that shows a topographic map of the area, with data points superimposed. So as you can see, it's getting close to snowfall, and the pack is way more active than they have been. They hunted well past dark tonight. They're doing what we're doing, stocking their pantries. I'm drying mushrooms for the winter stews, and Naomi's been collecting, drying, and grinding acorns for flour. We all feel winter coming. Exactly. They need to eat as much as they can now. In winter, there'll be less food, and it'll be harder to hunt. How do you know so much about their comings and goings? Is it just from observations? Most of the pack is chipped, so we can track them pretty accurately. We observe them like this, and we have game cameras all around the property. And sometimes we even run drones to videotape behavior. The other week, we got an amazing video of the pack taking down a doe on the northernmost meadow. It's all part of the global system known as the Internet of Animals. So... What are coyote-wolf hybrids? Colloquially, they're known as koi wolves. They're coyotes hybridized with wolves. They're more coyote than wolf, but the interbreeding has made them larger. We've known about hybrids for a long time, but about 30 years ago we saw a real spike in the crossbreeding around the Great Lakes region. We started seeing larger and larger coyotes, and hunting groups in the Adirondacks started accusing the state DEC of secretly reintroducing wolves. But it's a natural phenomenon, driven, of course, by anthropogenic pressures like climate change and hunting. And, of course, there's more food than ever for them. You mean the deer? Yeah. Hunters never took enough, and the deer population skyrocketed. In places like Oneonta, they became as common as squirrels. They walked down the streets. It didn't take long for the coyotes to hear the dinner bells. They are remarkably adaptable and smart. So the koi wolves had an impact on the deer populations. And that would be good, right? Because it would allow the understory to grow back? See, you're starting to think like the forest. One of the goals of this project is to try to figure out what effect they're having on the deer. Anecdotally, we're seeing fewer deer, and we think more understory. But if koi wolves aren't filling in that predatory niche, the eastern wilder student encampments would probably be reintroducing them like the western encampments are doing. As if we don't have enough controversy already with the coyote hunters. 
Nick and Professor Moody chat late into the night, but eventually we all fall silent. The pack will be up before dawn, and we should be awake to observe them. Our voices get quieter, and the forest around us seems to get closer. We hear the hoots of a great horned owl. And I feel an unexpected jolt of anxiety. How do you get used to sleeping outside all the time? I mean, I've camped before, but out here, it feels way out, even though I know we're just a few kilometers from other people. My dad first taught me about those fungi networks to help me fight the isolation I felt a lot of growing up. It helped to know that something always knows I exist and where I am. I still lean into the comfort of that a lot, but I hate to admit this, but hearing those owl hoots kind of disquieted me. It took me a while to adapt to that. I grew up in a big family and there was noise at all hours of the day and night. My first night out here, I was almost understimulated by the lack of noise. That lack of noise led to my increasing oral sense. I would hear things that might not even be there. Over time, I adapted to it. The darkness at night can be a bit difficult for many as well. We try to sync our sleeping schedules up with the sun so that many of us are up during sunrise and winding down at sundown. While most of us know that there are koi wolves, bugs, and other critters out here, it's actually people I fear the most. We have not had any serious crimes at the Wilder Student Encampment, thankfully, but many of us come here having experienced the worst of people. So maybe we try to spare ourselves and each other from reenacting that. People have these ways of being some of the most amazing things on this earth and also the most destructive and horrific thing on this earth. So I think for a lot of us, the woods are a way to escape all the horrors of the human world. Once we get used to it, we sleep really peacefully. Now I have a harder time in loud environments. I like the word disquiet. You know, I've dealt with anxiety for my whole life. I'm disquieted by the koi wolves. I'm anxious alone in the woods. I'm anxious around people in town. Even the stars disquiet me. I had an astronomy professor who told us, don't imagine that you're looking out into space. Imagine that you're looking down. I guess disquiet is not a bad way to be in the woods. Fear is part of our generic genetic. Fear is part of our genetic heritage. It's kept us alive for millions of years. And now people should be scared by climate change. Why shouldn't it be disquieting that humans have become so powerful that we can alter the entire balance of life on the planet? I think fear can be adaptive or maladaptive. Like fear of fire is certainly adaptive at the individual level, but it can become maladaptive, like when we interrupt the natural fire cycles that are part of the natural succession of many forests. If people are scared of koi wolves, wait until we start reintroducing controlled forest fires. You're totally right, Nick. The fear of wolves is deeply ingrained in people. That must go way back. We've hunted them to the ends of the earth and the edge of extinction, even though we have almost no historical records of wolves attacking people. Maybe it was different during and after the last ice age, and that's where that fear comes from. Or maybe not. People fear change. That's also both adaptive and maladaptive. I mean, I'm part of what they call the millennial generation. I think maybe it was the most feared and reviled generation in history got blamed for everything. Millennials destroyed the car. 
Millennials ruined the single-family house. The older generation didn't recognize themselves in us, so they were afraid and they vilified us. And that's why I want to work with the Wilder students. I don't understand or agree with everything they're doing, but I've decided to not be afraid of them. Uh, in part, I've learned that from watching the Koi Wolves. There's been a real shift in their behavior in the last three decades. Coyotes usually live in family packs and hunt alone, but more recently, pack size has increased. You've got unrelated koi wolves joining the pack, and the young are remaining with their parents a lot longer. You'll see that tomorrow. There are three cubs in that. Uh, that you'll see that tomorrow. There are three cubs that in the past would have left already, but are still here. So koi wolf culture is changing? They're adapting. Yeah, probably as a result of environmental instability and the hybridization. With climate change, there are winners and losers, though overall the tally sheet leans towards loss. We're losing biodiversity at alarming rate, hence the great Anthropocene extinction. But coyotes are adaptable. They're becoming more numerous. With a larger pack, they can hunt deer more effectively, which means a lot more food, which means more young, and so on. Is it wrong to take some courage from the example of koi wolves? I don't think so. It's an awe-inspiring thing to witness. Nature is incredibly resilient. In Africa, fully half of the baboon troops have now flipped into matriarchies. Whales have been seen to organize and actively interrupt deep-sea drilling operations and aid climate refugees on foundering boats. The human species is now also intensely interested in adaptation. It's not a coincidence that every child in the last 20 years has been raised on resource management games when we're facing a species-wide planetary resource management challenge. In that context, what are the Wilder students, if not a pack that has adapted to new environmental conditions? While they're busy trying to think like a mountain or think like a forest, the rest of us should be trying to think more like the Wilder students. finally sleep. The next morning, the tablet gently wakes us up before dawn. We shake our tumblers and quickly eat our breakfasts. Nick brews college camp coffee, a mix of roasted herbs and nuts gathered in the forest that has a mild stimulant like caffeine in it. As the sky lightens over the ridge, we see the koi wolves emerge from their den. The binocular view is incredibly detailed. I can see their eyes. They seem to know we are there, they're aware of us. It's breathtaking. The pack watches us for a while, and then they take off to the north. We get reports from another blind that they've taken down two deer. We spend the middle part of the day exploring the den environs and watching a hawk hunt mice in a nearby meadow. In the evening, we are back in the blind. When the wolves return, their cheeks are red with blood.
decide that on my final night, I want to spend it at one of the satellite camps, completely by myself. I've been listening to some of my recordings from this weekend, and aside from cringing from my titanium spork moments, I've realized a couple of things. I really thought I left my assumptions about the Wilder students at the edge of the woods, but I couldn't have been more wrong. I expected Walden Pond, hippies, glorified camping. At dinner, I asked Nick to expand on his reasons for joining the movement. During that conversation, he admitted that he uses the line, it's more than a long camping trip, all the time with people who want to think that's all it is. I had to confess that I, too, held those prejudgments. Their assurance to me that this movement is a fluid one, actively made accessible as broadly as possible, was exactly what helped me to understand what the Wilder students really are all about. The patchwork structures of the encampment are the signposts to a movement unafraid to change. After experiencing the life of the Wilder students, I realized it's not about what they are or aren't. Any definitions the Wilder students use are just to comfort the label-hungry people like me from an outside the encampment. The movement is literally built to accept everyone it can, just like how Nick brought me to the encampment as his way of telling me what it is. The Wilder students are leading a fundamentally futurist movement that sweeps open its arms not only to explain what they're doing, but to welcome everyone to help build, write, cook, study our way to an ever more positive- Oh shit. what was that? Uh, sorry. That was probably just an animal walking by. I, I just freaked out. I've been reading Solas, the book of poems by Lena Suarez that Cyan shared with me. I didn't really understand Nick when he talked about the connection and shared solitude, but I think I'm getting it. This one poem really got to me. It's called Chrome. I shined the old aspen till I could see my own face staring back in chrome. Giddy with self, I shined up another one, this time with a curve that made my middle bow out. Suspicious now. I shined every aspen in sight to get every last opinion. When I was finished, my pride stared back at an aspenless, but quaking more than ever, forest of myself. When Scion was transferring Solex to my tablet, they also snuck in a copy of Trevor Two Horses, The Forest Ambassadors. Scion underlined this passage. The reason we go into nature is not to extract anything, certainly not a product to be monetized, packaged, bought and sold. We don't go into nature for meaning or enlightenment either. That's been part of the problem the whole time. Nature's meaning and value is always calculated in human terms. What's a tree to us? What can we extract from it? Instead. Go into nature and ask what service we can be to it. What can we learn from it, yes, but what obligation do we incur in the gaining of that knowledge? The forest cannot talk, but it can speak. Can we listen? 
can we be the medium through which the rest of humanity can understand the intentions of the forest? It's not lost on me that I'm already listening to my recordings and reading book passages to all of you because I'm feeling very isolated. I know the forest knows I'm here, but I'm not sure I've ever gone completely without that validation from humans too. Most of our lives, we know who we are because of our reflections in the people around us. Who are we if the ones doing the reflecting are not people, but the plants and animals of the forest? I'm gonna log off and sit with the forest to hear what it has to tell me. You've been listening to The 2041 Project. This week's episode wouldn't have been possible without the efforts of Green New World Broadcasting Collective members Doug Riley, Nick Welch, Emma Sarnacki, Andres Bollins and his studio assistant 2Class, and the A.J. Reed Science Discovery Center of SUNY Oneonta. Next episode, we'll get to know some of the real people known as the Saints of 38. We'll meet with Aisha Williams, who was scheduled to work CZ Tower 12 on that fateful day in 38. We'll talk with Aisha about her childhood in the Western Wind Farms Cooperative, the complexities of navigating her stewardess upbringing and sexual identity, the day she joined the Corps of Geoengineers, her memories of the attack, and how she's overcome survivor's guilt by dedicating herself to the educational work begun by her partner, Mina Niazi, Saint of 38. For now, keep your eyes on the prize, everyone.